Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I remember it was August 2011 at 3.43 in the morning. And I was like, well, maybe it's not everybody else's fault. Maybe it's my fault because I never, ever took responsibility. I can't change anyone else, but maybe I can change something about me. What can I change about myself? And then finally the tears welled up inside of me. And I just said, okay, I'm tired of fighting. I don't want to fight anymore. I want to be healthy. I want to be happy. I want to be surrounded by nothing but positive people. I just want to inspire people. And I want to make a bunch of money. But I want the money to represent something that I passionately believe in, that I would do for free. Just show me a sign. Just show me a sign. Just show me a sign. And I just kept saying it over and over and over and over and over. Hey there, it's Light Watkins, and we are back with another episode of At the End of the Tunnel. And if this is your first time listening to the show, here's what you're in for. I interview luminaries, artists, philanthropists, athletes, creatives, and basically anyone who has gone above and beyond to be the change that they wish to see in the world. Sometimes they start movements or they create films or they write books that inspire people. And my guest this week has one of the most inspiring stories I've ever heard. And at this point, I've heard a lot of inspiring stories. His name is Garen Jones. So Garen grew up in Houston. His dad was an abusive alcoholic drug dealer who was murdered when Garen was just 12 years old. And as a teenager, he started breaking into cars and houses. And this landed him in juvenile detention. But then cut to a few years later, Garen starts modeling and he's writing music. But during that time, he got busted in France for smuggling heroin. And the story just keeps getting crazier and crazier. Anyway, Garen ended up doing time in France for that. And then years later, he lost everything. He's now living out of his car. He's hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt with no connection to his family or friends or his daughter. And according to Garen, he hit rock bottom more times than even he could count. But then he was able to turn it all around. It started with this random encounter with a homeless guy at a gas station who told him that if he changed his mindset, he could change his life. And over the next handful of years, that's exactly what Garen did. He actually became a millionaire many times over. He's now a motivational speaker and he inspires people all over the world. And he has a best-selling book called, guess what? Change your mindset, change your life. Garen's story is incredible and I cannot wait for you to hear him tell it in this episode. But before we get into the story, I have a question for you. Have you ever meditated for 108 days in a row? And if not, are you up for the challenge? Because if you are, 
then you are invited to join my 108-day meditation challenge. The 108-day challenge is a part of my Happiness Insiders online community, which you've heard me talk about over and over. It teaches you practices like meditation, obviously, for increasing happiness within. So the way it works is you pay a $39 entry fee. You get access to my seven-day meditation kickstart, which is going to teach you everything you need to meditate without guidance for at least 10 minutes a day. And then you'll get daily prompts and accountability to help support you in your 108-day commitment. So by the end, not only are you a daily meditator, but you're also a part of a larger community of other daily meditators. It's kind of like running a marathon with other marathoners cheering you on each step of the way. And the best part is once you cross that finish line, your $39 entry fee will be credited back to you. We've got hundreds of people who've already successfully gone through the challenge, and it's designed to help you accomplish what feels like a marathon to a lot of people, which is finally becoming a daily meditator. To get more information about that, go to thehappinessinsiders.com and let me help you take your inner practices to the next level. All right, now let's dive into the backstory of Garen Jones and find out how he found the light at the end of his tunnel. First of all, your name, Garen, where is that from? Well, my mom's name is Sharian. She wanted something close to that. And her friend said, how about the name Garen? And she really liked it. But that's not the story I grew up with. I actually heard another story, and I think my brother lied to me. And so I'm just finding this out as of like a year ago. Like my brother, when I grew up, Man, he used to just sabotage me. I think he was just so jealous of the attention I got. But he told me that my name was originally supposed to be Garion. That's named after my mom, Sharian and Garion. But the doctor misspelled my name. And so my the, we didn't have the money to actually correct it. So it was just Garion. So I went my whole life thinking that I was a mistake. Mm. And so I found out <laughs> that some of the greatest inventions in the world came from mistakes. So I like kind of rewrote that. But then I just found out when, when I think my wife asked my mom, she had a completely different story. But my mother never told me that story. I just went off my brother's story. You and your brother and your mom and your dad, as a young child, you all were all in Houston, right? Yes. In the third ward, what are some of the, what are the what are the traits of the third ward for those people who aren't familiar well, with with that area? Of now it's like gentrified, so it's like way different. But third ward was the hoodest of the hood, where killings happen all the time, and no one ever found out. I was only born there, but I don't remember there. The only part I remember is when my dad moved back there after my mom separated and I would go and visit him, but I never played mm-hmm. outside. So mm-hmm. my brother remembers more than I do, but it was a very, very, very one of the roughest neighborhoods in Houston. Um, hood, drugs, killings, people arrested all the time, but that was the norm. And my dad was murdered in that same neighborhood and nothing ever happened. So that was normal. When you were four years old, some guy put you in a dryer or something yeah, like this? Yeah, so that's when we were in Sharpstown. So I, I, we were in Bel Air. It's a neighborhood in Houston. So it was in Houston. 
And I remember I went downstairs and there's the community washer and dryer. And I remember I used to love Disneyland so much. And so just, I just like, wow, Disneyland, you know what you see on TV. Oh my God, it's Disneyland. And an adult, like a full grown man, asked me if I wanted to go to Disneyland. And I remember just saying, yeah, I want to go to Disneyland. He said, well, if you get in that dryer, you'll go to Disneyland. And I remember saying to myself, that doesn't make sense to me. But we're taught to listen to our elders and, you know what I'm saying? It was like, this is what we're taught. And so I just remember saying, this doesn't make sense, but I really want to go to Disneyland really bad. So he lifts up, a, so a grown man lifts up a child, a four-year-old, puts him in the dryer, closes the dryer, turns it on. And I remember when that door closed, I instantly, as soon as it turned on, I can instantly feel the heat. And I'm just tumbling around and tumbling around and tumbling around and screaming and crying. And a a lady ran out of her apartment building and opened up the dryer because she saw the whole thing happen. She had no clothes on and she's the one that saved my life. But in that moment, I lost trust of people that, that were older than me. I didn't care about Disneyland when all these other kids were talking about Disneyland. But I didn't realize this was the reason why I didn't like I never got excited about Disneyland until like six years ago. <laughs> but no Disneyland for me. Didn't care for Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck. Didn't trust people who were older than me. Didn't trust, period. And didn't trust myself because I took a risk. And that risk almost killed me. So in my mind, taking a risk is associated with I'm about to die. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode. I have a lot of questions about that, but there's so many moments like this in your life. 
I so many. Go too deep into any one of them. But did you get seriously hurt from that, or are you just kind of? Oh, I had it? burns and boils literally all over my body. Wow. These like these big old, you know, like you get a burn or something, mm-hmm. or if you ever been cooking with hot skillet grease and that grease pops out mm-hmm. from the bacon or the fried bologna sandwich, and then pops mm-hmm. out. I had <laughs> bubbles. I think only black people would, would get that reference. Of fried yeah, I was just about sandwich. to say, for those of you who understand a fried bologna sandwich. <laughs> and that pop of the grease on your skin. Yeah, I know. Some people, some, some of your listeners are like, I I don't think I, I can relate. Right. What is bologna? So that must have been one of your earliest memories because you're four. Yeah. Did your mom get upset with you because of that? I don't, the only thing I remember around that is my brother who was eight, mm-hmm. my, but my brother was really big. My brother started puberty in the fifth grade. So yeah. he was really big and really tall and he could fight. He went to go find the dude. I think the dude was like 18 years old and, yeah. my, and my brother beat him up. No way. I, re, I remember, I like, I remember it so clearly. And my brother did something to him. He hit him with a stick and he did some things. Maybe the guy didn't fight back. I just remember the dude getting beat up by my brother because of right. what he did to me. That's the only thing I So remember. you pointed the guy out because he was like chilling out in the playground. No, or something. no, the, the lady who saw oh. me, the lady who saw me Got it. told my family. And you know what? I bet you that guy had mental problems. I mean, he obviously had mental problems, but I bet you he probably, if this was like the hood, he probably had some undiagnosed autism, you know, something, something. that caused him to well, do so that. that. Sharpstown wasn't so much the hood. I was born in the hood. This one was more of, there was more white people. You know, there was Hispanics. It was more variety of people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we moved away from what people would call the ghetto. So parents separated. You and your brother go to the same parent or you get to so, choose? So, yeah, so this is this was even wild. There's so much stuff to unpack. So I'm <laughs> four. This is the same age, four years old. Mm-hmm. And I remember my mom and dad used to fight all the time. And my mom told me at four. Pick which parent you want to go with, me or your dad, because they're separating. And I remember saying, I don't want to choose. Now I'm going to turn this into a whole lesson, but I remember saying, I don't want to choose. And I remember there as being like, should we have 30 minutes left to get your stuff together and everything. And I'm a little kid. And I just meant, I don't, there was a, the feeling of dread. I don't want to choose. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. At the last minute, finally, I was like, I want to go with dad. I finally chose. And so I remember getting into the car, driving away. My brother chose my mom. And I'm watching, you know, when you drive away and the people get small because you're getting further and further. Something just like hit, like impacted my spirit. What I now know is my intuition. I didn't know back then. But it said, go with your mom, go with your mom. And I said, stop the car. I want to go with mom. I want to go with mom. I want to go with mom. So my dad drove back. And I remember running up to my brother and my mom and hugging them. And then my dad drives off. I never would have known that eight years later that my father would have been murdered in the same neighborhood that I was supposed to live in. 
However, here's what happened. Every argument after that, my parents, we were they were separated, but anytime they were in a room, they were arguing, I kept saying it's my fault. And I thought it was my fault because I chose my mom instead of my dad. So I blamed myself for every argument. And when my father was murdered, guess who I blamed for it? You, because you weren't there. Because I wasn't there. And I've been living my whole life. It was like, why do I procrastinate? Why am I often late? Why do I, why do I feel like I can get anywhere, anywhere in the city in 30 minutes, even if it's two hours away? It, why do I always wait till the last minute? I don't know. Finally, I discovered, oh my God, that little boy has been playing the same sequence. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Stall, stall, stall. The feeling of dread and make decisions at the last minute. I've been, that's been the story of my life my whole life until I realized where it started. So all this drama is happening in the background. What was your favorite toy or activity back in those years, those early years? You were eight, nine, 10 years old. My favorite activity is running. I always mm-hmm. loved running. There was a sense of freedom. I would always have like really happy thoughts. It's like flying to Peter Pan, but I loved running. And my mom said, I always knew you were going to be a runner because it normally takes babies 11 and a half months to start walking. She said, you were full-blown running at six and a half, almost seven months. <laughs> like full-blown. She said it was so odd because she was so tiny. And you had these little bow legged but you would just run everywhere. When you say running as a 10-year-old, what are we talking about? Because people aren't actually running like they run these days. There's not a lot of jogging happening, especially in No, I was you know, on a track areas. team. I was on a summer league AAU track team when I was seven, eight, nine, ten. I ran with some of the fastest kids in the world. A lot of them went on to win Olympics, gold medal Olympics. And when I was nine, I set a record for the mile in my oh, elementary wow. for a six minute mile and the record's still there. So when I say I was, wow. a, I was an avid runner, competition, running against people all over the country and making it to nationals, winning gold medals and everything. So talk about your near-death experience at 10 years old. Which one? The one where you almost drowned. (laughs) Which one? (laughs) I'm telling you, there's just so many that when I go back, so 10. Actually, I believe I was in the seventh grade. I was either seven years old or I was in the seventh grade. It's one of those. But me and Derek Duncan and a couple of other neighborhood boys were playing baseball in a cul-de-sac. I had been hearing about kids in the neighborhood being killed by these people that were drowning them in the bayou. When you hear these things of like folklore things, you don't think that they'll ever happen to you. So I was playing baseball and I saw these kids that I knew because they were my older cousin's friends. I knew of them because I've seen them with my older cousin. And they were like, oh, there's you know, big trout in the bayou. And in my head, I was just like, all right, I just, I want to go, I want to go fishing. Derek Duncan says, don't go. Like, everybody was like, why are you leaving? Don't go. And I was like, I want to go catch these fish. So I go and follow these 
three grown men, and then there's these little tunnels. So you have this dark bio water and these three tunnels that are sucking the current in, and then they suck it all the way to the street. So anything, anything that goes inside of there doesn't last because it's going underwater in current until it gets sucked out on the other side of the street. So I don't think anything of it. I'm looking for trout. And he was, I was like, I don't see any trout. He's like, you got to look closer. And I'm looking closer and I don't even see it. And he's like, you got to look closer. And his voice changed. And you're seeing that thing on YouTube. It was like, it was at this moment. He knew mm-hmm. he effed up. In that moment, when he said, look closer, something told me, these are the guys that's been drowning those kids. But by that time, I was already in the water. Current mm-hmm. sucked me in. And by that time, I couldn't swim at all. So I'm sitting there, oh my God, oh my God. And I'm getting flipped because of the current and the whirlpools. And I'm literally getting sucked into this tunnel. And I just said, it was done. Like I gave up. I legit dropped my hand. You can't see in the water. Drop my hand. Here's the, okay, here's the tunnel right here. I'm coming this way. My hand's outside the tunnel going like this. I drop my hand and I'm underwater being sucked into the tunnel. Out of nowhere, a hand goes, boom, grabs this, pulls me up just enough so that I can grab the side. And then I grab the side of the tunnel and I pulled myself up. When I looked up, I saw nobody. That was one of the scariest times in my life. And still no explanation. Your homies didn't come and try to like find you. Still no explanation. I called out the people who it was. There was no proof. It was all these different things and nothing ever happened. And I'm sure in retrospect, something really did happen to those guys. Right. Nothing ever happened to my knowledge being a little kid. Mm -hmm. I just knew that that I'm not going to trust when somebody says, hey, come do this. Hey, come do that. So another Mm -hmm. lack of trust when it comes to older people. So father is murdered at 12, a couple years later, a few years later. What is the conversation like in your household with your mom, with your brother? Was she giving you guys any sort of life philosophy? Was she repeating anything over and over? You got to work hard or... My mom was the number one supporter. She supported every sport that I did, but there wasn't any philosophy talk around the house. If anybody ever gave me philosophy, it was actually my dad. And it was when I was five years old. He would always tell me, you know, don't ever let anybody tell tell you you can't do something. If you love it, then you do it. If it makes you happy, then you do it. And I just always remember that. I'm like, this doesn't make me happy. Why am I doing this? So... That was the one thing that I just kind of just swirled around in my mind to always use because it works. Something makes me happy when I love it. And then I just do what makes me happy that I love that brings joy to me. It always, always works. What led you to start breaking into houses and cars? This is a whole nother thing. I'm going to have to take it back into time. <laughs> Okay. Because I've always, I've always been a hustler. And I remember I was five and I asked my mom for a pair of Jordans to buy me a Mm -hmm. pair of Jordans. 
She was like, expensive, expensive as those shoes are. She was like, when you can make your own money, you can buy whatever you want. She didn't say how. There was no discipline in that way. It's not how to make the money. When you can make your own money, you can buy whatever you want. So I did things that was with an integrity. Like I'd wash cars, I would mow lawns, I would do all these things, but I would also break into cars, steal things and whatever. I would do whatever I had to do to make money. I just, whenever I make my own money, do what you want. So take that timestamp of somebody who's been hustling since he was five. My mother was a hustler. She didn't have no money. She always found a way to make money. So it was like, I literally been hustling to get what I wanted since I was five. However, I needed to do it. Fast forward me 22 years old and somebody give me the opportunity to make some money driving a car from one border over a ferry to the next border from the UK to Rotterdam. Don't ask no questions. You drive this car, you make 4,000 pounds. And one pound at that time in 2001 was worth $2.3. So that's $8,000 cash every time I drove. I did that route seven to eight times over a two, three month period. I've never seen fast cash like that. And I'd always been fearless, always. So driving a car, let me, yeah, okay. Boom, 8,000, 8,000, 8,000. So imagine three month period, 8,000, 8,000, 8,000, 8,000, 8,000. But on the seventh time, they had me fly into France and everything about it felt wrong. And when I got to the border, you know, I used to use my modeling magazines. I was on the cover of a magazine. People were like, why were you doing all of this when you were modeling? I was like, models don't make that much money like the supermodels do. And once you book a job, you got to wait three, four months till you get a check. So I didn't have a lot of money coming in. But this fast cash, if I can do this this easy and I can have this as my cover up. So I ended up getting caught and they sentenced me to 12 years in the prison. And I got out in two and a half. But you also got arrested at 14, right? Oh, is that the one you're talking about? So juvenile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, juvenile thing for breaking in the yeah. <laughs> breaking in the cars okay. and, and houses and stuff. Yeah, so it's so funny. I've always been a leader or someone who can influence people. Somebody had introduced me to opening up car doors, and I never really had to break the window because what we call it. We go to the white neighborhood, which is mm-hmm. in my mind. That was the neighborhood where all the rich white people live. They would mm-hmm. never lock their car doors. So we would go there, just open it up and take whatever was valuable and then sell it. So I did that with a guy one night and I fell in love with it. I have a very addictive personality and I just kept doing it. And I was like, hey, you want to do cars? Want to come do cars? And then it, it was me and 12 other dudes that were doing these cars and taking whatever was valuable, splitting it up sometimes. And I just did that for years. But whenever I got caught, I never lied. I would always admit, yes, I did do it. Yes, I broke into 62 cars in one night. Yes, it was me, but I never told on anyone else. So that happened to be the time when I got caught, I was on probation. But even while I was on probation, I still kept doing it 
So because I got caught breaking into cars while I was on probation, that's when I went to juvenile. Were you a sociopath or what was your relationship with like, you didn't think? I, know that, I didn't know that what that was when I was. Right. Like, but I'm just saying like, looking back now, did you just have, you had no, you made no connection between this is someone's stuff and, or you just thought this yeah, is all mine. You, this is all my stuff. I just haven't gotten it yet. I didn't think about any of that. What I actually craved and still do mm-hmm. was recognition. There was a mm-hmm. lot of significance in that. Because when I do something fearless, they're like, oh, man, you're like fearless and you would do this and great job and stuff like if you look at any any of my successes or anything anywhere where there's the most recognition, you will see me excel. I've been like that since I was a kid. I just didn't know where to point that energy. Until I got older, so Mm -hmm. running around, well, I wasn't with the gang but I ran around with gang members and did a lot of stuff that they did. And there was lots of recognition in there, breaking cars. It was lots of recognition. When I was sleeping with a lot of women, they're like, oh man, you get all the girls. There was lots of recognition. So it was never the stuff or the repercussions of it. It was the fact that somebody saw me because I didn't feel like I was seen at home. When I connect the dots looking backwards, Right. And when you were in juvie, one of the, I guess, correction officers handed you something. You asked him how you could get out of that situation. I was in there and I remember everybody saying, because I was, I didn't start puberty until I graduated high school. So I was little for a very long time. So at that age, when I was 15, I probably had a six size six shoe. I was about five foot one. I was very tiny. And so when I was in juvenile, everybody was like, why are you here? You're too good to be like, what are you doing here? Nobody could believe why I was so small and in juvenile. And I remember I was supposed to go to TYC, which is a prison for teenagers. Mm -hmm. And that was about six hours away from my mom. Mind you, I had never been away from my mom. So this, me being in juvenile was the longest I'd ever been away, but she could visit. And I was supposed to go to juvenile and because I had 62 counts. Anytime you break into a car, it's considered a felony. I admitted to all 62. So it was considered having 62 felonies. And so they were trying me as an adult at 15 and I was five foot one and a little kid. So here's what was supposed to happen. I go to juvenile. Then I go to prison for teenagers. Then they try me as an adult at 16. I remember dreading going to TYC. I was in line and we weren't, we weren't supposed to get out of line. And I remember seeing this man, he had gold trim glasses, khakis on. He had a little bit darker skin than me. He was bald and, and in a white button down shirt. Something told me to go ask him, how can I get, it, get out? And I wasn't supposed to get out of line. I was like, excuse me, how can I get out of here? First thing he said is, do you know the Lord's prayer? I was like, no, what is that? He pulls out this little orange Bible and he said, when you learn the Lord's prayer, that's when you'll get out. Mm. And I remember saying that was the stupidest thing ever. (laughs) And I took that little orange Bible and it was literally in my cell for the longest time. A week before I was, I was in there for six and a half months. I was the week before I was supposed to get out. And I was like, man, let me see what's in this. Let me learn this stupid Lord's Prayer. 
And I just started, our Father, Lord in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I did that over and over and over and over and over. Sometimes people quote things from memory. But it was almost as if just saying those words was doing something internally inside of me and having me walk into mastery, but I was unaware of what was happening. One day, I remember not having to remember it, and it just felt like it was a part of me. And I stood up, and I would just say it every single day. And then I just said it, and I was just like, that felt different. As soon as I finished, I felt that there was a knock on the door. Mind you, it's a week before I leave off for prison for teenagers, TYC. Soon as I finished the Lord's Prayer, when I felt it in my body, knock, 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 knock. Jones, today's your lucky day. You're getting out. <laughs> and I remember looking at the little orange Bible and I'm like, wow. And ever since then, that was the defining thing that supported me in my relationship with, you know, I'm a follower of Christ, my relationship with God. And, you know, I wavered so much, but every single time I go back to the Lord's prayer and it just, I become it. I become, I read the book until the book starts reading me. The most magical miracle things happen with grace and ease. And it started when I was, that little kid, and I've seen so many instances of me being connected to the spiritual aspect and abundance follows or miracles that don't make sense according to how human brains think. What was the legal loophole that the universe used to get you out of that place? Nobody knows. It was just like a, Jones, you're getting out. Today's your lucky day. You go back to school now, you're becoming more focused, but you're still, I guess, breaking into stuff and stripping and this kind of thing a little bit. I didn't start that until I got to in 11th grade. So that one was more freshman, 14, 15. Because see, I didn't know that what I was feeding my mind Mm -hmm. was causing me to be a different person. I just thought I was lucky. I was like, whoo. I was like, wow, I'm so lucky. I didn't know your thoughts create things and you can create your reality, whatever, because I didn't really have mentors like that. So I, I, I was just so clueless. You can't change what you're not aware of. So after a while, I just gave up. I stopped doing things. And I remember my probation officer, his name is something Darnell, Bobby Darnell or Bobby something. He looked at me. He's like, you know, There comes a time where you hit a fork in a road. You can either stop, do nothing. You can make a left or you can make a right. When you make a left, you change your life. You make a right. You go further in and you'll end up dead or in prison for life. And he said, you're heading down the path on the right. And you've already passed the point where you can do anything about it. He told me this. I remember him saying, I can't, I, I wish 
I can meet him and say, bro, I took a left. <laughs> I took a left. That's ultimately what, what took place. And, and then high school happened and I went to another school and I just got bored. I got really bored. And every time when I get bored, start thinking of different things that I can do for me not to be bored. It's interesting. You and I actually ended up in New York around the same time. We were both modeling. I was with DNA. I was with Boss for a little period of time. I was with Ford for a period of time. You were with Willamina and Ford. Yeah. Talk yeah. about how, how you ended up in New York. What was the circumstance that brought um, you? So I started modeling in L.A. I was with Ford for runway and Wilhelmina for print because mm-hmm. Ford had like the best runway in America. And so I, you know, was booking all kinds of stuff, all kinds of music videos, L'Oreal hair commercial, Gap, Old Navy, doing Tommy Hilfiger stuff. And I was booking a lot of stuff. And then first time I went to New York, they turned me down. Next time I went to New York, I had a catalog full of all of the campaigns that nobody on their walls had. So I had Mm -hmm. more work then a lot of their mind, and then I went there, they were like, we'd love to represent you and everything. So that's why I was in New York because I really wanted the bigger, bigger jobs and I wanted to hit that New York market. So that's why I originally went to New York and how I got to New York. Cause I was first when I was with major in New York, me and Channing Tatum started together and, you know, we were, super connected boys, me, Channing, and this boy named Lucas were all like top models that were on the come up. Me and Channing did Sean John fashion show together, Fat Farm and stuff like that. And, you know, that's how I hit the New York market. But then again, there was there's not a lot of money coming in when you're trying to, to like really work that market. They just trying to get the dirt casting directors to see your face and you're you're going out in a specific season and me being in New York I was just like man I just I want that big life I want to drive nice cars and that's something I always wanted and so when the opportunity presented and it's so wild how it presented I was at a fashion party in New York Johnny something, whoever the photographer is, I forgot it, Johnny Hernandez, big time celebrity photographer. He was like, I want to get you a picture with Miss France. Her name was Sonia Rowland. I took pictures with her and we just headed off. She ended up being my girlfriend and I went out to France to go visit her. And she was out of town a lot because she was like Miss France 2001 or 2002 or 2000, one of those. But she was always shooting movies, everything. She went out of town. I went to a party. Went out to a party. I saw somebody from L.A. that I knew. I knew they weren't good people, the people that were up to good. However, it was a familiar face in an unfamiliar place. Mm. And when you just see that, your senses just raise up. And so we're speaking the same language. And then that's when the opportunity to, I'd say, drive luxury vehicles from one country to another for a large sum of money, or at least that's what I thought, presented itself, I took it. Was it a random stop or were they stopping everybody? You just, you just, the wrong place, wrong time type of thing when they stopped you. 
I think I was set up. But I later learned, this was later on, like two years in, is that whenever somebody gets busted with drugs, they all come over from all of the posts to back that person up. So if they all come over, it leaves the other portals open for cars to just drive through. And since, you know, the reason why I got out, because after they tested the drugs, they retested them. It was an extensive search. 85% of those drugs were fake. So it wasn't 6.2 kilos of heroin. It was like one kilo of heroin and a bunch of... They tested the drugs three times. But after two and a half years, it's so interesting. I felt more free in prison than I did when I was not in prison because I was doing everything that I'd forgotten that I loved. Drawing, running, motivating people, just visual arts and things like that. And I started doing all that and I just felt free. I was like, man, I stopped doing all of this. These are things that made me happy when I was a little kid. Running, motivating people, all the stuff that we talked about when I was a little kid. Well, when I felt the most free, it's very interesting how they called me in the office and they said, Jones. And I was like, this reminds me of when I was a little kid. And by the way, I was reading the Bible heavily. They you read it me. like eight times, right? Yeah. And it was, I just kept over and over and over. And it just was, a, it felt like it was a part of me. And it's so funny because they called me into the office and they said, we retested the drugs and it didn't make sense. I thought I was getting in trouble. It didn't make sense why they retested drugs. And they said 85% of it was fake. It was either 85 or 90. It was a high number. So I might be paraphrasing. And for the amount that was real, You've already done the time. You're free to go home. <laughs> he must have been thinking, holy shit, this, this Bible stuff really, no, really I works. Didn't, I didn't. I wasn't aware. I wasn't aware. You can't see the picture while you're in the frame. It wasn't until later, until I connected the dots looking backwards. I'm like, oh, there's a formula here. When I have a great relationship with God, when I'm doing the stuff that I love and I'm in my word, something magical happens every single time. And I have so many examples of it. And it even happened way away in Europe. I wasn't supposed to get out to 2012. I went in 2002, I mean, 2001. So I felt free. Jones, you're free to go home. Did you start reading The Power of Positive Thinking in prison? Or was that no, later? I read it. I read it when I was 18. And a lady, a fashion show coordinator named Shannon Davidson, she had gave me that book for my 18th birthday. And I thought it was the stupidest thing. One, I used to have a speaking impediment. And so I never read <laughs> books. I never read books. And I was also in special education classes in high school. So thinking I'm stupid, talking like this, I had an issue with people who spoke eloquently with big words and spoke with passion. Kind of like I'm doing right now. Only I don't use really big, eloquent words. I just talk how I talk. But when people would talk like that, I would clam up in a shell because it was such a deep insecurity for me. So I originally used The Power of Positive Thinking, that book, when I was 18, to over-enunciate every word that was in the book. But I didn't read the book 
for the message that was in the book. So I was like, the other day I was forgiving my family. So I just started reading it out loud and over enunciating. By the time I was done reading that book, I was talking like this. I was like, oh my God. So I trained myself how to speak by actually reading a book. Because I never read a book during really high school because I cheated my way through high school. And so that was the first complete book I ever read in my entire life. Fortunately for me, it was a book called The Power of Positive Thinking. So just by reading the words and uttering the words, all of these really cool things was happening in my life, like the modeling stuff, like the acting stuff, like the attracting certain women into my life that I was like, oh my God, this is an A-list singer. This is a A-list rapper. Why does she like me? It, you know, and all these things were happening while I was reading this stuff. Speaking of which, you attracted a music deal, some kind of like half million dollar deal with Ludacris. That was when I, when I got out of prison. How did that happen? How'd you meet Ludacris? I call him my brother, but he's a really good friend of mine. His name is D-Ray Davis. He's a comedian. Yeah, comedian. Yeah, yeah. Yep. He hosts the improv every Monday night for like the last 14 years. Any celebrity that comes, any black celebrity that comes in town, any rapper, any sports star that is in town, they always come to his Monday improv. Well, D-Ray gave me an ultimatum when I got out of prison. And I had wrote all these songs while I was in prison. And I said I was going to get a record deal and I'm going to record some songs. And I'm going to make music for the first time in my life. So when I got out, he said, I'll give you a free place to stay. I'll buy you clothes and I'll drive you wherever you want to go. And he goes, you want to be a singer, right? And I said, yeah. He said, don't come home unless you have a song. I didn't know a producer. I had no money. I, he said, don't come home unless you have a song. That's why I got introduced to MySpace. So I got on MySpace and then I just started messaging people. I'm a singer. All I had was shirtless pictures. I had no demo. And then somebody uh, named John Henry let me go to the studio. I recorded a song called Breathe It In. And then I took that one song, put it on MySpace, and I reapproached every single person I hit up. Oh, I have a song. But because I had a song, then they saw what I was capable of. Now, I was just in the studio. 30 days, I had 28 songs. And when I was done with that, it just so happened that Ludacris happened to be in town, came to the improv. Now, D-Ray was the host, so he can put anybody on stage that he wants. Instead of him putting himself on stage... He gave me his time and put me on stage and I rocked the house. And then Ludacris looked over at D-Ray. He was like, this is his music? They're like, yeah. He was like, does he have more? 28 songs that I recorded in the last 30 days gave to him. Next thing you know, I'm having a meeting up at Def Jam with Luda and the CEOs of President at Def Jam. Kevin, Kevin Lyle and those guys? No, it was before they were president. Anyways, he was a big player at Def Jam. They loved my music, and we went off on the runnings. This, that's how it happened. With so songs, it, 
that I wrote while I was in prison. Was it half a million dollars? Is that the deal? $500,000. I did not get (laughs) $500,000. That was, I got a signing bonus for, I think it was a hundred thousand. And then I would get the rest when my album came out. My album never came out. So I just had the hundred thousand signing bonus. And that's what I bought my car cash with. Cut to 2009, you're living, <laughs> you're living in your car. That what same car. That what I the freak happened? So I ended up leaving the record label. So there was a showcase and I never prepared. I didn't understand. I didn't have the right guidance. I knew how to sound good on tape, but I didn't know how to sound good live because I didn't understand preparation like I do now. And there was a showcase that had like, there was Jill Scott. And there was all these big names showcasing. And then I went out on stage and it wasn't that good. You know, Chrisette Michelle, she had told me that I did really well and she loved my music, but it just didn't, it didn't translate. The very next day, Def Jam dropped me from the label, but I was still on DTP. And I was like, this doesn't feel right to me. I, I shouldn't be on the stage rapping with, I mean, singing with gangster rappers. I, I should never have put out the song Celebrity Chick. I wrote it, but I didn't want to put it out because it was not my sound. And I felt like I, and I allowed this to happen, to go further and further and further away from who I really am. So I left and I went to go do it independent so I, that I can make my own music the way that I wanted to make it. But I, I never made any money. No money ever really came in. And so it was one thing after the next, after the next. It's like, man, how long can I keep this image up? Well, I had a daughter. My mom was struggling. I wasn't making any money. That weighs hard on a man. And it's like, you can't take care of your kid. You can't do this. And like, you're putting on weight. Your girlfriend breaks up with you because you can't take care of your life. Your mom is dying in the hospital. So all of that was happening at the same time. And the camel that broke the straw's back. So I was in the studio and I won't name his name. With a major recording platinum artist writing songs. I came up with a melody and I contributed to almost half of the song. And there were people that were not in the studio that night. I know exactly who was in the studio. When I called their business manager to talk about splits, they said he decided to change the song. So it's not going to be on the album. That song came out. It went number one. And it was the exact same song. It won a Grammy, but that whole time I was living in my car and I had to watch him give credit to somebody that wasn't even in the room, wasn't even there that night while I got nothing. And I said, F you, F music, F this whole industry, I'll go find something else to do. And then I left the industry. When I left the industry, I went dark. I was depressed. I was stressed out. And I was like, man, they can take everything they wanted me away from me. They can't take away my car. Car was the only thing I had. So I started living in my car and have anywhere else to go. And it was just like, 
the pressure of trying to maintain an image, being seen on MTV, being seen in these other things was so difficult to maintain image. And I was too prideful to get a nine to five job, too prideful to go back home because I told everybody at home, if I come back home, you know I failed. What is that like living in your car? Because I've also seen you post a photo of a storage room that you were also kind of, I guess I, that was around the same time, right? Yeah. What was that like? You, where were you going to the bathroom? Where were you parking at night? So I had a membership and I had a hookup membership. You know how those are. You don't pay every single <laughs> Major hookup. Had a hookup membership over at 24-Hour Fitness. Mm-hmm. The one in Hollywood? Hour, yeah, on La Brea and... No, it wasn't 24-Hour Fitness. It was LA Fitness, the one on La Brea mm. and Hollywood. So I had a hookup there. That's where I would shower. That's where, you know, if I didn't have a girl's house to sleep at, which I was always going to a club so I can find a different girl whose house I got. It was so much that I got tired of sleeping with him. I was like, yo, I just want to sleep. I just want to sleep. So I would... Just find a way. But when it gets to a point where you're numb with emotions, you stop thinking about the monotony of everything that's going around. Going, you know, just going around. And I was just going down, 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 down. And I'm like, how did I get myself here? Like, I, I don't understand. Like, I'm actually talented. There's some untalented people that are doing well. Why am I in the same spot? Why am I getting worse? Why am I hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt from having not paid taxes for the last 10 years, but they can't get you past seven? And all that was my modeling money stuff because you had to pay your own taxes. And I never paid. And it's getting worse. My girlfriend breaks up with me. It's getting worse. Mom's dying in the hospital. It's getting worse. It's like, I you know, I use the excuse because I'm black. It's getting worse. It's because of the president. I'm getting worse. Yeah, you know, it they just want to you don't want to give a brother a chance. It's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And I try to take my life twice. And I didn't even I failed at that. (laughs) Maybe I should stop saying, can it get any worse? And I started asking myself different questions. And I remember it was August 2011 at 343 in the morning. And I was like, well, maybe it's not everybody else's fault. Maybe it's my fault because I never, ever took responsibility. And so right. I, said, oh, I can't change anyone else, but maybe I can change something about me. What can I change about myself? And then finally the tears welled up inside of me. And I just said, okay, I'm tired of fighting. I don't want to fight anymore. I want to be healthy. I want to be happy. I want to be surrounded by nothing but positive people. I just want to inspire people and I want to make a bunch of money, but I want the money to represent something that I passionately believe in that I would do for free. Just show me a sign. Just show me a sign. Just show me a sign. And I just kept saying it over and over and over and over and over. A week later, I'm at a gas station. You live in LA, it's $4.59 for one gallon. 
I have $2 to my name. I can't even get a gallon, but I'm on E. And I'm in Inglewood, and I'm shooting an independent film. And I'm in Inglewood. And I go, and some homeless person asked me for money. I said, you have more money than me. And they said, change your mindset, change your life. I don't know what it was about those words, but it like it had resonance to it. There was energy behind it. It was something that was like, and it made me think, you ever seen a movie, Sixth Sense, when he didn't even know he was dead and then he saw all these things play out? Same thing happened with me. I saw all these things played out. I was like, maybe my life was a lie because of how I've been thinking. So what if I do different with the same circumstance? Change your mindset, change your life. Change your mindset, change your life. So that became the new broken record, the new song in my head. Change your mindset, change your life. All of a sudden, I just started doing the opposite of everything I wouldn't normally do in areas of my life where I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy with my health. So I started practicing looking at healthy people and getting around a healthy, active community. I used to go to clubs every night trying to chase a different woman. So I started practicing reading books. So I placed clubs, nightclubs, with books and audiobooks. And I started practicing and doing this opposite. Normally, I would take the, the, the escalators, change your mindset, change your life. So I'd take the stairs. So an object in motion stays in motion. Unless a, a stronger something, an outside force stops it. So my motion before was the way that I was living. But by training the opposite inside of me, of just doing the opposite, I staged myself outside of the way I had been living since I was a little kid. So every day since it's all, it's been 10 years, every single day when I find myself not wanting to do something, I say, change your mindset, change your life. Get up and do it. But then once you do it for long enough, it doesn't become a struggle. It actually becomes part of you. It becomes second nature. I didn't realize that health, what I thought was a new thing, was actually part of my nature. Having good health, being kind to people, reading books, not filling my mind with knowledge, my heart with knowledge, my soul with knowledge, just like forgiving people, letting go of resentment. That is all to bring me back into who I really am deep down on the inside. So this was a forever evolving thing that I pivoted because of that one homeless person. People say, I wouldn't listen to anybody who I wouldn't change lives with. Well, I think you might be missing a lot of messages. Hmm. And I feel like good God will put messages inside of the least likely places that you would look. Because otherwise, everybody would be rich and wealthy. You got to learn somehow. So that is how I got on the path of enlightenment, transformation, understanding. I learned the hard way and the hard way to the hard way. And I never went to the schools and got all the terminologies and got the doctrines and got the certificates. But let me tell you something, my life certificate, I always said, I'll never go to school for 15 years so I can get the big money. I paid the price for 15 years and that's when the big money came. That's so crazy. I still had to go to school. 
So you had your own place a year later, you were a millionaire, but four years later, two and a half years later. Yeah. Two and a half years later, I was earning $115,000 a month range on average. So when that all was happening, what were you feeling inside that you were not feeling inside before that homeless person said, change your mind, change your life? Consistent joy, peace of mind, like I actually matter in the world. A sense of purpose, a sense of recognition, because when I shared my story of me Mm -hmm. living in my car and doing all of this and and people were like, oh, my God, you had 125 videos out when you were living in your storage. I never knew that. Wow, that's crazy. I got you had a YouTube life. channel with like inspirational content, right? Yeah. And I got my reps in. I didn't know that I was training myself to be excellent at speaking and at panels. You put me on a panel. You put me on a stage. Well, I don't care who the big name is. They'll be like, yo, who's that guy? because I'm fairly new to the public. I only left the bubble of the company that I was in because I was in this part of this health and wellness company for eight years and I didn't do anything else. It was only two years ago that I said, you know what? I feel like this message needs to go public. I need to go Mm -hmm. out and share it. That's when I started doing podcasts two and a half years ago. And I was just like podcasts and very, very first podcast I ever did was Impact Theory. That was my first a week after I said, I'm going to go public. How did he, how did Tom find you? They, they sent his show producer, some black dude saw me on another, on a, some little interview I did for my friend, Kevin, that I've known from the fashion industry and said, we need a story like that on this platform. So the black guy had found me, showed Tom and Tom was like, yes, but I say all of that to say I didn't know that until I shared my truth, truth, everything that really, I mean, like naked, here's who I really am. And here's what I'm really going through. First message I got from somebody was when you shared your story, I put the gun down. And I was like, boom, I have a new recognition. So I poured all of that same energy because they gave me feedback of you changed my life. And I was like, oh, this feels good, but this feels different than the other forms of recognition of being seen than I've ever had. So the more and more people are like, oh, my God, you inspire me so much. I love when you shared that. I love when you did this talk and the, when the grittiness came out when you were speaking, I felt like this whole darkness just left the room when you had a standing ovation with 6,000 people. And all of, all of that is the same little boy where somebody's like, man, yo, you are so fearless when you, when you break into those cars. It's like, man, you motivate me so much. And I and that was the moment I was like, I I have a mission, I have a purpose, I understand, and I'm so worthy of it. And now I understand why I had to go through what it seems like twenty men go through, but in one body, so that I can relate to many different kind of people. 
I can relate to so many, the spiritual aspect, the freaking gangbanger aspect, the drug dealer aspect, the stripper aspect, the special needs aspect, the sexual trauma aspect, the speech impediments, like, and so those are the people who follow me and they don't even share those stories until I say something about speech impediment. I was like, damn, I never really shared that with anybody, but I also had a speech impediment (laughs) because I become the permission slip for other people to realize, oh, it's okay to be all the way me and to share all the way me. What was the motivation behind going up to those 2000 strangers and asking those three questions? How do I love myself? How to find happiness and how to change my life? Like, When did you do that? And why did you do that? So I remember I was just praying. I was like, God, send me a sign. Like, what do you want me to do? Like, what do you, what do you use me? Like, what do you like? Give me what, what do you need me for? Like, I'll do it. And people just kept saying, you should write a book. You should write a book. You should write a book. And usually when things come in in multitudes like that, and it keeps coming because I probably ignored the signs early on. But when they keep coming like that, it's because something's trying to get my attention. So finally, I decided to write a book called Change Your Mindset, Change Your Life. I didn't know how. I didn't know a publisher. I didn't know anything. And while I was in the process, and you know, it was a five-year process to write my book, but it didn't take me five years to write it. It was five years because I was just like, I'm trying to write the perfect book. I'm a follower of Christ, but my best friend's Jewish and, and I have Muslim friends and I have gay friends and I have all these. And how do I write a book that fits everybody? That was where the difficulty was instead of just writing my book for my own story instead of trying to please people. So I went through that whole process. But in that process, I just decided to ask, it's like if you can ask the universe three questions regarding change, and you could get the answer, what would it be? So at every event I ever went to, I would just hand out cards. I still have them right now. You know, I have them like, it's funny, I just found this box that had all my index cards and it has all these questions. Well, the questions that got asked the most, I felt like I could answer or support the statistic of the world's questions. So whichever question was asked the most, what's my purpose? How do I find love? You know what I'm saying? That's a question that millions of other more people are asking. If that's the commonality of a question. So when it came to that, that became the questions that I answered inside of my book because the people asked it. So that was an everyday people's guide to understanding the questions that you typically ask every day. And what is the Youth Foundation? I'll tell you. So I have the Change Your Mindset Youth Foundation. And when I created it, it's because someone else suggested it. Mm-hmm. So it's something that went on the back burner because it's not something that I resonated with right then in the moment. But it's somebody said, oh, you should do It's time to do a foundation now. So I went to mm-hmm. go do a foundation now, but it just didn't resonate with me now. It's kind of like... When somebody was like, okay, hey, let's go to church. Well, I don't want to go to church right now, but I did it because I was like, I don't want God to be mad at me, so I'm going to go. So 
It's on the back burner for right now because there's some things that I am taking care of regarding men, regarding my own life, my family, my new daughter, my daughter that's almost 20 years old. But Change Your Mindset Youth Foundation is a foundation that will support underprivileged youth that came from similar environments that I had. And there'll be books and apps and opportunities to connect, almost like a big brother type program with the youth who need a certain level of education because they don't get access to it. I've been following you since we, you and I met in Venice that one night. And man, I was, you know, you, you lived in LA, you had this really beautiful house. You had a mural of the guy pulling you out of the water when you that were was black you know, Jesus. a kid, black Jesus. <laughs> and you would oftentimes post stories at your track practice. And you would yeah. say things like, you know, if you're, wake, if, you're, if you're waking up and watching this, that means God is still working on you. And, you know, just really inspirational stuff. You have affirmations at your house before you walk in. And now I, I've seen that you and Preston and, and uh, Stefan are, you guys started working out together in Austin because you all live in Austin. So yeah. just talk about the genesis of this men's initiative that you all are, are starting to create. Okay, because cool. what's, what's interesting about it is it's not something that I, I don't think you started with this intent in mind. It's no, just about working out yeah. and it turned into this thing. Well, one, I've never had men relationships just because of the unhealthy like my dad and my brother, me and my brother are really good now, but things that I saw them do to women and thing in the ways that they were, I was just like, I hate man. And I didn't realize when I said, I hate man, I was also saying, I hate myself. So I took more of the feminine qualities. Like I, I was raised by all women and I was still rough around the edges because I was always in the streets, but I still understood. I loved flowing spontaneity, the arts, dancing and singing and that's what but I was still like a little pit bull but I was more in the feminine aspect and I never had men relationships real true men brotherhood relationships then I moved to Austin and all of a sudden these men were like inviting me to things and I remember telling my wife I'm just like I don't know it's weird it's like all different kind of men They were just like inviting me to things, inviting me to lunch, inviting me. And I was like, and I wasn't used to that because I'd never had that before. And, you know, I've known Preston for 20 years, but we were never really close. I just known him. He's a fashion guy and he he was doing a bunch of stuff that I wanted to do. And I didn't know how to get into the industry. So I like hated on him for a while. I've also known his wife separately, Alexi, for 20 years as well. She's one of the people who used to write me while I was in prison. And so... I've known both of them separately for a very long time. And one day he invited me to a garage workout with Stephanos, who I did not know. And we just kept working out. And I was like, this is like really cool. This is right, right when we moved here. We kept working out. We were inviting more, more men. And I was like, man, it's like, I feel like when I was like a little kid, I used to ride bikes with my little homies in the neighborhood and everything and we used to like wrestle and talk trash and everything and then we just kept doing it and then we outgrew Stephanos's garage and then we went over to my boy Cal's house Cal Callahan he's a big time investor and he had just like CrossFit set up called the bunker in the back and then we just kept working out and we were meeting all kind of people well I happen to love 
motivating people. So instead of just the workout, at the end, I would close it with like the hoorah and motivating people. And then one guy walked up to me. He's like, man, you have no idea how much you changed my life. Notice the trend. <laughs> gave me a form of recognition. He was like, man, my relationship with my wife is better ever since I've been coming and largely because of the stuff that you say after the workout. So I just kept doing it and I kept doing it. And more guys were coming and more people were coming. And from that aspect of people coming, we outgrew that. Uh, that Cal's house. Yeah. Cal's house. He went out of town for three months. So we didn't have a place to go. So then we went to Onnit Primal Gym and then we outgrew that place. So, yo, we're going to go to a park. And then Preston called me. He was like, hey, man, I got this idea. He's like, I tried to do this before, but I tried to do it by myself. Hmm. And I want to start a brotherhood, something that's like scalable, starting with the workouts and that have membership and have retreats that have trauma work, shadow work and everything, but I know I can't do it alone. And I love the way you show up in the world. And the first meeting I went to, I said, why me? You say you love the way you show up in the world. I was like, all these people, there's so many powerful people. Why me? He said, because I watched you in your last company. I watched you take a group from zero to 475 people on a beach working out, playing dodgeball. And I saw you create a movement that turned into thousands of people. There's not many people like you. And I'm really good at what I do, but I don't do that in that way. And so he said, that's why you, because no one, he said, so like cat in the hat quote, he was like, no one can be more youer than you. I was like, oh, you, I'm in, bro. <laughs> you say you quoting cat in the hat. And it was the same with, with Stephanos. He's like really big in the men's work. I never did men's work, but I did transformation work. So I just understand people, period. But same with Stephanos. And we all just formed together. We just kept meeting and kept meeting and kept meeting. And then we formed a leadership group of like 16 other guys that were the most passionate at the workouts. And they have to happen to be gifted in so many different things. But it, they're so gifted that if none of us were a part of it, they could run a coalition by themselves. So it's not only us. It's 16 other people that are so gifted and we happen to work together because we love the mission. So it just kept turning into things over and over and over. And all we're doing is providing the space for the spillover that authentically keeps happening. So every man is who we are. And we're me and Stephanos and Preston were the co-founders of Empowered Brotherhood. That's capital M poweredbrotherhood.com. You go on there. We have a retreat coming up in January called the 48-Hour Retreat. There'll be ice baths, sound healing, shadow work, but you've got top-level coaches. Typically, it's like one and all the helpers. You don't have grade A masterclass teachers all working together in one space. So the, the elements and the elevation of what these men are getting, creating 
a new identity of how man sees himself and how the world sees man is our mission to truly help men. So that's what it's about. And that's how it came about. I wasn't seeking it, but it sought us and I answered and we answered to the calling. So beautiful. And I think that's just a good, it's a, a testament because when I see you specifically in that space, it's so clear that that is a part of your purpose, right? But it's not something you went to Austin to seek out. You may not have even put it on a list of things you ever wanted to aspire to achieve in your life, but you just kept taking steps. And, you know, you, we could argue, obviously, that everything in your life has been leading you to this moment. And I think you're just getting started, man. I, I think we're just seeing the beginning <laughs> of what's to we come. Are- I say it all the time. I feel like God puts the greatest blessings in the areas where we're least likely to look. Mm. I would have never ventured into men's work. Mm-hmm. You just like working out and you like pushing yourself in a workout. I love pushing so, yeah, myself. And then all of a sudden, here I am as like the leader of this. I was like, whoa. And yeah. it is people are moving from different countries, from different to cities to be in that energy. They were like this. There's nothing because lots of people that got men's work. They don't have that workout piece, that primal piece that they don't have the whole spectrum. And so people are like, I left this to come here because I need this. And now I realize in my own marriage, I didn't know how much I needed it until mm. I'm in it. Because mm. I'm trying to make my wife all of the things that the brothers, that they meet those needs. She can't, mm-hmm. be all, she can't be all the things. This is how everything happened. You guys got me damn near wanting to move to Austin. <laughs> Bro, I, I would not. I would, where are you? I'm in Mexico City, but I was just having a conversation with a friend of mine yesterday about if I had to go back to the States, where would I go? I was like, mm, probably Austin. I'd probably go to Austin. Well, and I can't lie. It's, pre- it's because of all these, it's all the stuff I'm seeing online, man, with you guys doing such great work. And I've never been a part of a men's initiative as big as the one as you guys have created out there. So it's exciting to watch. Come then, to Austin light. Come I know I'm going to come. I'm going to come and at least visit and just try to drop in on, on some of those sessions. That looks Looks amazing. Every single person that has come to visit stays was like, it makes no sense for me to go back to where I was. Wow. I love that. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, look, I want to wrap this up. And the way I typically do that is I loop back around to your childhood favorite activity, which for you obviously was running. And you mentioned freedom. You got a lot of, you felt a lot of freedom in running. Yeah. And I've also heard you in other interviews talk about the things that you were closest to as a child usually are what you are aligned with as your purpose and your path. And obviously you help people find freedom. And I think the mistake that we sometimes make is we think about, oh, as soon as I become financially free, all my problems will be resolved. And your whole thing is, no, become free within, find that freedom within yourself. And then all the resources you need for whatever you're doing in life, will you'll attract to yourself. Yeah, because when you free up that space, the resources fill in those gaps. That's right. 
when you take a when you take the old beat up car out of the garage, you can actually put another car in. <laughs> you create I the space that. to make room for your blessings. So just want to acknowledge you for not killing yourself those two times. Those are the only times I'm happy you failed. Yeah. <laughs> and for continuing to show up and for continuing to share the more embarrassing, darker parts of your story with the world in an effort to help those of us, because we all have them, to help those of us feel like we can relate to your story and that there is hope. There's hope. And, and we, we can't let anybody take that away from us. As Andy Dufresne says in that Shawshank Redemption movie that you saw in prison that time. Yeah, so. bro. <laughs> so thank you very much, man, for coming on here and sharing your story. And uh, of course, we'll put all of the links to everywhere we can find you in the show notes. And definitely check out the book, Change Your Mindset, Change Your Life. I'm sure you're probably working on the next Well, book. we're actually about to put out the audio book. Okay. You're going to read it, obviously. I would not have anybody else <laughs> You're gonna have to get my voice so that you can get the frequencies that's coming through. I, I can't, I like hearing the actual author. In the meantime, brother, thank you so much. We'll hopefully cross paths soon. I will let you know when I get to Austin and keep doing the good work, man. Thank you for tuning in to my interview with Garen Jones. To get more information about Garen, I suggest following him on social media at Garen.Jones. So his first name is spelled G-A-R-R-A-I-N dot J-O-N-E-S. And of course, his book, Change Your Mindset, Change Your Life is available everywhere books are sold. And we'll put links to all of it in the show notes, which you can find at lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. Speaking of lightwatkins.com, while you're there, you will see my recent book, Knowing Where to Look, is available in all versions, including audio, which is read by yours truly, and it has bonus commentary. So you definitely want to check that out. And you can also get information about my Happiness Insiders community, which is where you'll find that 108-day meditation challenge. I'm pretty sure that being a part of that community will change your life from the inside out. So if you're ready to take your inner work to the next level, just go to thehappinessinsiders.com to get more information and start your free trial. And finally, if you can subscribe and leave a rating or review for this podcast, that would be the best way to help share these conversations. It only takes 10 minutes to rate it. Just look at your screen, click the name of the podcast, scroll down past the previous episodes. You'll see the five stars and you can just click the star on the far right and you've left a rating. So thanks in advance for that. Make sure you subscribe so you're notified for the next episode from the end of the tunnel. And until then, as always, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, and keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you so much and have a great day. You want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.